Pilbara Killings by Sabine Shetlam, as read by Andrews Barr. Chapter 6. Good morning, Your Eminence. The deacon tapped his forehead with his index finger to the archbishop, as if he were doffing a non-existent hat. Not yet, Harry. Archbishop Tadjush Teddy Shistoff half-smiled. It had been a long time coming, all the years at that remote parish in Geraldton. It was a decade before the diocese had even noticed him. Fun runs for cancer, cake sales for community centres, and then the bishopric. The apprenticeship had been long and rather tedious, all those confessions and baptismal sermons. Thank God no more. He placed his bullish arm around the deacon and gripped him close in a solid bear hug. They'll have to replace me now if it all goes as planned. And taking in a satisfying deep breath, he looked upwards in gratitude at the plain vaulted ceiling. It had been years in the making. So many hands pressed, so many favours wrought, so many late-night phone calls. Deacon Harry Cannon helped the Archbishop take off his chasuble so that he could breathe a little. Teddy had always said that under it, the bishop's clothing should be no different from any alb worn by an altar boy. Soon enough, the deacon would be helping him on with his lacy choir rocher or handing him his scarlet beretta. Soon enough, he sighed. Teddy expected the Pope himself to give him the nod to wear a cardinal's scarlet cassock and to swap his episcopal ring for a gold one. The Pope's own stemmer would be engraved on it and a new audience would have to kiss it now. Teddy had even confidently thought of the design for his own coat of arms. The trip to Rome had been announced in the Subiaco Catholic News only a few days before, along with an anglicised guide to his name, Kershistoff, the periodical had stated, is how his grace prefers it to be pronounced. Well, in any event, it was no longer a secret, more a regional anticipation. Shistoff shuddered. So public, he had figured, all the things he didn't want going with the nomination. He wished he could be like those cardinals in Pectore, whom popes never named at all, keeping them occult to their breasts, so to speak, the reservati they were called, and life as a reservato would have been better. As that, not even a new cardinal himself might have known of his elevation, and he couldn't act like a cardinal if he never knew. If he couldn't ever be a cardinal, nothing would be expected of him, too. That would certainly be much easier. Teddy thought how much he loved the church and all its pomp and ceremony. He walked back to his office with a self-satisfying smile, drawing itself across his mouth, the, the sort of countenance that many clergy seem to adopt when they think they have all the answers, a kind of placid resignation. His secretary, Mrs Armitage, had left the day's mail on his desk with a small post-it reading, For His Grace. He appreciated that she had supplied his correct title, unlike Harry. What an unfortunate name anyway for a deacon. Deacon Cannon. Had he always aspired to be a minor church official? Did he come from a long line of deacons, or canons for that matter? He was such a trusting soul and had come with a job, like a piece of furniture and just about as engaging. The first two letters were diocesan and had the stamp of the president of the church board, Martin Shrewsbury. He'd run for state parliament twice as the Catholic candidate, but in these parts had trailed way behind the Greens and a strident independent woman who wanted more film censorship. 
The pre-election debates had killed off Shrewsbury and suggested that the only way to fix the economy or the plight of the unemployed all the way from Applecross to the southern tip of Yangabup was to firmly put one's trust in God. Shrewsbury's letter was forthright and officious. Collections had reached two-thirds of that needed to repair the plumbing in the vestry toilet, and he was sure this matter would be resolved within the month. He made some stiff remark about being flushed with success. It wasn't funny. The other endorsed the board's position that no member of the church hierarchy should be seen at the Gay Pride March, booked for that Sunday. For anyone identified, there would be the most dire of consequences. The third letter had no marking and was handwritten in a primitive cursive style. He opened it, tearing the top of the envelope, and a shower of confetti fell out. They were those little silver stars that one might see in an exercise book performed for good work by a child. The note inside was simple but direct. Do not spare Pippin. Teddy screwed the letter up and threw it on the desk. His answer segued into calmer reflection and he picked it up and straightened it out. He reached inside his vestments and pulled out a small key attached to an elastic chain, opening a flat compartment under the collection of drawers, and he placed the letter on top of a thin pile of other unsigned notes. The drawer was littered with small stars and little gold elephants. It reminded him every time he opened it about his performance, or lack of attention more like, to an issue few outside of himself, Pippin, and the one who had written the notes knew about. Fucking Pippin, Teddy blasphemed. Afterwards, in this hallowed place, he grasped at his rosary, mouthing two Hail Marys, two Our Fathers and a Glory Be. He looked around to see that there was no one there who might have heard or seen, but it was late and he was all alone. He knew that Mrs Armitage would be discreet. After all, she had seen all the files of all the offenders and she had typed so many memos. If he couldn't trust her, who could he trust? He placed a sealed letter on her desk with a stamp private and confidential. That stamp surely had quite a workout in his office. In it was a request to pull Pippin's church file. He walked slowly outside to the car, tapping his finger rhythmically to the cadence of his step. Too many secrets, he mused. One too many skeletons. But overall he figured that Mother Church could handle it. He'll leave it be just a little longer. The morning came and went, and Mrs Armitage had not been in. It was most unlike her, and the sexton, Arnold Pinkerton, charged with the day-to-day running of the buildings and everything else from the warmth of the evening meal to the strength of the nocturnal illumination over the neighbouring cemetery, was worried. She lived alone, had no children, and Mr Armitage had been dead these past nearly 35 years. I'll send a car out, the Volvo, nothing too ostentatious, nothing to draw attention. It was Margaret Oleander, Armitage's girl Friday, who found her. Oleander had sat in on so many meetings except those that the bishop had marked as private and confidential. A dog's body of a girl, brought through the ranks from the diocese and orphanage out at Market Street, right up to her position now. She was organiser of all the archbishop's schedule and so forth, had the job of fixing the ladies' auxiliary meeting of the police fund. Appearances of his grace at the Coburn jumble jumble sale, things like that. But in a short while, she had become indispensable to Armitage. Running for her laundry, paying her bills, doing her typing. She let old Armitage concentrate on the more important stuff. 
so close that she had cut a house key for Oleander to use when Armitage might be in conference with his grace. Here she had said to go round, clean out the aquarium and feed the cat. So tight had they become that if young Oleander didn't know any better, she would have thought that old Agnes might have had the hots for her. How fashionable, her own private lesbian crone. But Agnes didn't answer as she entered, quiet as a tomb. The front room had been turned upside down and several bonbonieri from a glass cabinet had been broken. There she was, lying on the floor of the living room with her head bashed in and the gloop of stiffened blood seeping through a rather nice Persian rug. That'll be ruined, she thought cynically. She pushed her foot at her to see if she might be alive, but it limply fell forward, atonal. She was stone cold. No weapon. Oleander went to her bedroom and all the jewellery boxes from the ensuite were opened and the keepsakes missing. She'd seen it all before when Agnes had shown her through the house. Nothing really fancy. More sentimental pieces that her husband had given her from his trips abroad. But something strange. The strong box that she kept below the counter untouched, the key still in it, and sitting inside a large blush pigeon red ruby in a gold setting. Why not take it? Perhaps he'd been disturbed, panicked and cracked her over the scone. It didn't feel right, but then again maybe she had watched too many television shows. She took out her iPhone and took some pictures. One of old Armitage in her death pose, another of the boxes ripped up and one of the rug. She was careful to wipe the box and key clean of fingerprints with a loose tissue. She did as she had been taught, emailing a copy to herself, one to the Archbishop another to Pinkerton, and one to Zimmerman. She owed him. She'd been a nice enough kid just trying to steer herself right after a bad week the year before with her indiscretions, caught that time with enough dope that some might have pinned her for a dealer had it not been for Zimmerman's intervention. Made it all go away like that. Nothing on her record, but she'd promised in the wake of investigations into the shenanigans at St Joseph's what with little altar boys getting felt up and charitable funds floating away on occasion, to be his eyes and his ears. She wasn't phased by the body, and she calmly called the police dutifully waiting in the kitchen for them to arrive with their stroboscopic blue lights flashing. No, she hadn't touched a thing in answer to their questions. These robberies are becoming increasingly common around these parts, even the better neighbourhoods. Money and drugs, one of them said, scratching his worried bald head. To him it all seemed dumb and dusted. Drugs? From an old lady? What were they after? Oleander thought. Her hormone replacement therapy? Leaving the house and walking outside ostensibly for a cigarette, she called the Archbishop within a few minutes to make sure he had received the email. He had intended to go to a board meeting, but had cancelled all his appointments for the day. Mrs Armitage had been his right hand for over 15 years, and there was no one to replace her. Devastating, Goss, it's dreadful, he trembled over the phone. They speculated a little on the manner of it all, the nuts and bolts. There was a long pause as Teddy processed the fact that someone had beaten her to death. I'll come by the office to clean it up, Your Grace. Oleander snapped him back to earth and became officious. When you do, just drop off the office keys, he said, and collecting himself, he tacked on an unemotional coda, adding, oh, and her computer password, too. I don't know it, Your Grace. 
Teddy became a little flushed and said he had to ring off. How to access all her other files? A sharp pain hit him in the chest and he drew a deep breath. God, did it all have to do with Pippin? Two families had complained in the last two years. Both had seemed litigious. It didn't do to have one of his city's parish priests feeling up those tempting little altar boys. He'd sat through their private testimonies with only Mrs Armitage by his side, taking the minutes. Teddy had promised them all swift justice and, and an airing at the next board meeting, but it never went any further. She'd opened a file at his direction just as he had done over a decade before, when the German seminarium who'd come over for the semester had touched all those boys at the Manning Kingdom faith camp. He'd been warned about Pippin, whose bipolar illness should have disqualified him. But the Archdiocese had been so PC, some mental irregularity in one's background, was almost a rite of passage. The interviews for ordination held the darkest things in almost all the candidates nowadays. It was rare to see someone so bland that they hadn't been through some breakdown or other. There was never either an innocent start or reminder he should have guessed by the nomadic nature of Pippin's resume, never at anything longer than six months, ancient references, one of whom was untraceable. No theological scholar, surely not, but he seemed devout enough, practised in the simple ministrations of the Holy Mass. He would do. But soon enough, almost immediately after his ordination, the first complaint arrived, inordinately close, one said, overly familiar another. Teddy had observed him at near quarters, so to speak, in what he called his surgeries, out and about amongst the parishioners, and he couldn't detect anything wrong. Pressing the flesh with the great unwashed, as he put it. Nothing there, there, as the Americans might have said. Then came the bombshell. The lurid nature of the complaints about Father Pippin didn't really bother him so much as the chance that some of this shit might become public. He couldn't afford that at all. But it's a different era now. The propensity for anything to go viral concerned Teddy. It kept him awake. Those PE teachers were always the ones to keep an eye on, he figured, hanging around in shower blocks and the like, watching the kids getting dressed. The parents had lodged their stories that were so alike from different ends of Pippin's parish that either it was a ridiculously collusive lie or the plain and simple truth. Teddy lit up a cigarette to accompany his pondering. Why are the perpetrators so obsessed with prepubescent genitals, putting their hands down the boys' bathers at summer festival of all the most inappropriate places? Hell, both places were pretty inappropriate, he thought. And what's with all the oral sex? It takes a Catholic bishop to think sometimes like a woman. If they forced themselves onto one of the lads, why on earth didn't he just bite the bloody thing off? There was too much of this garbage to deal with, and Teddy had promised the distraught families that there would be action. Mrs Armitage had looked up from taking notes in her tartan exercise book and reassured them all that all would be all right. She seemed neat and eminently believable. Pippin would be dismissed, handed over to the authorities. There would surely be a trial. Reparations. The sounds of compensation clicked in their minds and they'd all calmed to a contrite whisper. The threat to the church herself was bad enough, but so was the threat to his elevation. If the cardinal had heard of the slightest rumour, he could kiss years of political manoeuvring goodbye. For God's sake, he'd chaired an ecumenical gathering only the year before that had reported the Premier on the Church response to child molestation. 
The board had told him not to do it, but better get ahead of the problem and clean house, he had thought. Root out the rooters, so to speak. But he never did. Rather looked like we were doing something. Nothing to see here, as the police would say, at some crime scene. That's always how anyone knew that there actually was something to see. The vociferous denial. Mrs Armitage had signed the letter from the Archdiocese to the Premier's office on his behalf and also those of solace to the families. They could all see Teddy's distance and now he berated himself for keeping everything at arm's length. Perhaps he should have taken a keener personal interest and spent more time with them or maybe made the simple effort to sign everything himself. He went over and over it and still wasn't sure. There was one thing he was callously certain of, however. At least it was her head that had been bashed in, not his. Teddy woke abruptly to the sound of a a 6am phone call. He didn't catch the name of the reporter from the Sentinel, a rag of a newspaper that was no real friend of the Catholic Church. They always start so softly, and before one knows it, someone has blurted out something they never intended. Who is it? Teddy asked. Silence. He asked again, and after more silence came the answer, Tom Blart. Blart was definitely no friend of the cause. He had headed up a disruptive group at a town hall meeting called a year ago to calm the nerves of the community that something was being done about those sexual predators from the church. Everybody might have imagined that the diocese was full of them with the occasional cleric who didn't have his hands down someone's pants or up some kid's skirt. Teddy rubbed his eyes and put on his wire frames, adjusting to the morning light. Wasn't Blart the one who read that awful article about the missing funds? Charitable cash raised for the new children's cancer centre that made its way to the renovation of the private quarters. Fortunately, it didn't go anywhere when the company doing up the place went bankrupt. What do you say about Pippin? came the noise on the end of the line. Who? he said, changing it quickly to give the impression of innocence to what are you talking about. Blart moved in for the kill. Father Pippin of Geraldton. Pippin the pervert. This time you can't cover it up. Teddy sighed loudly into the phone and invited Blart to come to his office. Could he leave his number as, given the terrible circumstances, there was no Archdiocese secretary and he was unaware at this hour of his schedule? Oh yes, Blart retorted, your lady got her skull smashed. That's a little insensitive, isn't it? He struggled for a pen, copying down the number precisely and drawing several deep lines under it as a reminder, but he had no intention of calling Blart back. He gave his excuses, but the other end of the line had already gone dead. Bastards, he thought. Hyenas in for the kill. He'd ring the Premier's office. Perhaps they could help as they had done so swiftly last last time. He waited the two hours before it would be likely that he could be put through busying himself with making the tea that Mrs Armitage would normally have organised. He couldn't find the honey for his toast and in frustration surveyed the manicured gardens at the back of his private residence instead. The conifers were not doing well in this warm, dry climate, he thought. A rather disheartening white fungus. Before he even attempted the call, it was the Premier's office on the phone. Premier Kiraglu gruffly came on the line. Teddy, good morning. Well, a shit morning, actually. My PA informs me that Blart called you. Tell him to fuck right off. We came through for you before and we'll do it again. I'll speak to Pringle. It needn't go anywhere. 
Max Pringle, the chairman of Consolidated Holdings, was an old friend, but Teddy could not see, be seen to be doing it himself. The group had a sizeable media portfolio with one terrestrial and one cable channel, and the three papers in its stable, the Sentinel, the Birdswood Herald, and the Fremantle Chronicle. They're closing in, Mr Premier. I'm not sure the Governance Board can hold them off. We have considerable power, that is true, but since the last inquiry, we've been forced to put so many of the laity into management of the church, and of course so many women. None of them understand the need for pontifical protection. The Premier started in an attached manner. The article they'd ready to run six months ago had many holes in it, as you know. Much speculation and central pieces missing. That whole position was thanks to your pontifical secrecy. No one doubted that you could safely hide behind canon law. It would never have legally mustered, and I told Max that he could never run it. All just accusation without substance. But it's different now, Teddy. Even your Pope is not letting you hide. At this, the bishop brought out all the demurring lines he had used at the state inquiry the previous year. But you know full well, sir, the dilemma that we have. To report is there in the new law, the sacramentorum sanctitatis tutela, but it regards all this as a crimum pessimum, the foulest crime and subject to the same secrecies as even my very appointment. He was in full flight and even the crotchety premier couldn't interrupt his rhythm. Does not the crimen solicitationis judge us for harshly judging our own? You see how our hands are tied. Teddy was now rattling off the most recent papal changes made to the ancient criminal statutes, as if the Latin had some special gravitas and might deflect any lawyer or politician for that matter. The premier was becoming annoyed. You can stop that bullshit with me. We know that the commission had called you a what was it again? Jeez, uh, uh, I can't remember. It was a great line. What was it? Tergiversate. That's it. I can't forget it. He sanctified the moment with a solid definition. A person whose sole purpose is to provide obstructing and conflicting statements. You're a goddamn confuser is what you are, Teddy. That's why you got the job in the first place. There's nothing like the ambivalence of the church to provide its penitence with some crystal clear direction, eh? He sounded pleased with himself and obviously felt it was time to crude things up a little. I'm no Christian scholar, but even I know they're fiddling around with the same question since the days of the popes from before the French Revolution. You'd think with all your vestments it'd be pretty hard to get your dicks out, but it hasn't stopped you for hundreds of years. If you're grappling with to tell or not to tell, you eventually fuck it up. Or more likely as now it'll be fucked up for you. That's pretty primitive, sir. He sounded resigned. The Premier had not come from good stock, he thought. Turkish. Pulled himself up with only a high school education to prominence as a brash transport minister who saved the public transport system from going under by privatising some of it. He had the gift of the gab, all right, but he was different in private, more boorish and bullying. Teddy had seen this other side far too much for his liking. Kiraglu weighed in again at the Archbishop, who was becoming visibly angry. If you think that Kasak is going to hold off, you're sadly mistaken. What's more, as pressure mounts on you, it doubles up on me. You can't be funding your schools with anything like the governmental enthusiasms of the past. It was a heavily polished line, and Teddy had heard it before. You have all those independent Catholic schools to worry about, and your kids and their parents are going to flee to the opposition. Teddy knew it. Kasak, the Catholics about sexual abuse against children, had been relentless over the last year. The brainchild of one spirited woman, Marlene Nordstrom, 
a convert's convert. She'd started all those years ago in the Archdiocese administration, in his own offices, for God's sake, organising buses and fates and such. But almost daily news from their own people of all those horrid fumblings had proven too much. It takes a lot for someone so devout to grasp at the bullhorn, rounding up the victims, sitting so silently in their rooms, castigating themselves in shame. She'd made those videos with so many too distraught to sit in front of any camera, an idea that she had picked up from a trip to LA's Holocaust Museum, and her quilt of guilt, another plagiarised American idea. But Teddy knew that the Premier was right. It was all about money, how much the church had or could hang on to. He didn't want to go down as the Archbishop under whose reign St Joseph's Church of the Assumption was gutted. It was hard enough to keep attendances up in this day and age without all that scandal of his priests and their penitence. Absolutio ad cortellum, he thought, absolution through doubt. The strength of the church would survive through ambiguity. There was no other way. He could hear the Premier eating and, between mouthfuls, <coughs> issuing orders. Come clean, Teddy. Say that <coughs> this has come to your attention in the face of all the international press afforded the victims of the church. Tell them you feel it your moral duty to investigate and establish a new body whose sole purpose is to get at the truth. How should we put it? an exploratory council. If you don't, there'll be a royal commission and none of us wants that. Those royals go on for years. All it will do is take away your cash and boot me out. I won't get my AO and you won't even get your scarlet tunic. You with me? It ended relatively abruptly. He had some governing to do or so he said and he expected the Archbishop to report back in the next week with the structure of the council and some names of its members. Good Christians who would do what they were told and would find out just enough to keep both sides satisfied. Whenever there was something up, he would finish his sentences with, You with me? Like they were both in on some inside betting tip. Government by the nudge and the wink. Teddy didn't much like the Turk's style. Chapter 7 A week on, it was Laura Bertelli's first full day at uni. Well, it wasn't a real day, but rather the giddy excitement at the start of every O-week. Her uncle had told her about his old days at university when there were so many politics clubs to join during their orientation. Apparently, according to him, the Marxists hated those Trotskyists, whoever the heck they were, and both detested those fools from the Socialist Workers' Alliance. Everyone seemed to despise the anarchists but now all she saw was some lame, spotty youth rabbiting on about the liberal conservatives and about how great they had been for the promotion of private and religious schools. He seemed to stand inordinately close to her, so she took one of his pamphlets and walked the few yards to be able to chuck it out without him seeing. Almost immediately another one came out thin, maybe overly so, with thick corduroy pants far too heavy for this weather. A straggly half-on, half-off beard, she wished he could make up his mind. Thick-rimmed glasses. Join the naked club, he smiled. It's liberating. What's that, Laura said, a little wide-eyed. Well, every Wednesday afternoon, we assemble at the back of the rugby field, take our clothes off and talk. Yeah, sure, pull the other one. He looked a little disappointed as she walked off, taking brochures from almost anyone else, so, so that she could get away from his sphere of influence. She packed her throw-all with them. Archery learn Cantonese, cook up a Cajun storm. There was even some Amway crap. What a load of shit, she thought. 
Her current flirtation was with Christianity. For the last month she had snuck out of her apartment each day a little before dawn to attend the remains of the nighttime matins liturgy and see it through into the morning Lord's Prayer at Our Lady of the Victories. Her new day had become sected by the canon hours of her rediscovered faith and whenever possible she would return late afternoon for the Vespers prayer session to hear Father Proudfoot's apposite sermons and to take the sacrament. Time would tell if this was something real or just another phase. The journey to university had been circuitous and at 28 she had arrived a little late to law arts but she was serenely happy to have been accepted. For sure there had been a lot of problems at school. A little light drugs, nothing big though. An infatuated maths tutor, a pregnancy, an abortion, the usual. It wasn't so much the things outside the family but more the crap she had to deal with inside. Her older brother had been such a prick. His heart was in the right place all right but he never listened to her. Nobody listened to her, and she had a lot to say. She thought how she never really rated in that family. Nobody had ever said they were proud of her. That was really all she needed to hear so as not to become lost. But lost she had been. A father who left home when she was nine and never came back. <coughs> not that he abandoned them on purpose. He just keeled over with a fat stroke and died right there in the middle of the street on his way to work. She'd seen him from the front window stumble like a drunkard. All the people had walked around him as if nothing had happened. They'd argued that morning before he left, but for the life of her she couldn't remember what it was about. She'd tried for years to remember that one. Just some more Italian melodrama, and she teared up whenever she thought about it. She daydreamed over how many replays one could get in life anyway, but she truly wished that she could have had that one over again. And Mama, what a stoic. Alone now these last twenty years. An honest rock. <clears throat> Laura had done almost everything, McDonald's, Burger King, the local hardware store and a bit of taxi driving, kindergarten assistant, aged home care, Christ that last one was awful, sitting all day with some hopeless dribbler and heaving them off their cushion of crap, she hated it, and everyone praised her like she was a saint or something, if only they knew. She spent more time going through their underwear drawer looking for spare loose change than feeding them their gruel by the spoonful. She wished she could pay it all back somehow. But all the different jobs had just made her more estranged from her family. No one really understood them or her. In truth, she didn't really care too much for the study of the law, but a place had come up for an application she filed nearly one year before. It had been a relief and she was grateful for that. Gotten it on her school marks with just a simple interview and that was it. Stupid questions, really. What do you think the law means to society? What are your personal weaknesses and strengths? That kind of bullshit. She thought that they might have drawn up some new questions and they even let her out to the toilet in the middle of the interview where she just googled some of the things they'd asked so that she could sound a little smarter later on. What dumb fucks. Everyone filtered into the lecture hall and the tutor entered in a wheelchair. He had a kind face, but his hands and feet were withered and he spoke into a small microphone taped to the side of his mouth. It was like a Madonna concert. Maybe he'd break out into song. Assignment pages were passed around and one of the more officious ones at the front took it upon himself to be class monitor. As the tutor spoke, the teacher's pet shushed everyone and frowned accordingly if there was any chatter or laughter. Didn't they know this was now a serious business? There was at least one of these twerps in every year. It turned out there was nothing particular to do that day, 
and as the official term didn't start for another two months, each student had that time to take on and complete a thesis project, something topical like those things that were listed in the handouts or even something entirely original. Laura pulled open the folder. God, it was awful and so predictable. Write on the culture of euthanasia. Should you join a union? Why do I like the constitution? So my best friend is having an abortion. Discuss. She could at least relate to that last one. She might rename it and make it a little personal. How I survived someone shoving a coat hanger up me, or maybe better yet, the things I do for love. But she felt more than a twinge of remorse. Her latter-day Catholic fervour had dogged her sleep a fair bit recently over that decision. And of course, her mother never knew and never would know. The class broke up almost as quickly as it had formed, and she left immediately. She didn't want to start socialising with this group, although they were already dissolving into small formations like a volleyball pick. She crossed the road and went into the nearest pub, ordering a large cold beer. The one endearing quality of almost any Australian university is its proximity to decent alcohol. No one could ever say that getting a university education wasn't edifying. The pub was large, uh, largely empty, except for an old bugger dozing at the end of the bar. The newspapers were strewn about and partially stuck to the wood of the bar where it had gotten wet. As she pulled one of them forward, it tore off and she was left with just a fragment of page seven. Aboriginal girl mutilated, it read, found by holidaymakers in Outback Parbadu. There was a picture of an elderly man and a dog taken on his wife's iPhone. It was one of old Henry Henry, standing in a boggy marsh with a goofy look on his face. In all honesty, both Henry and the dog had goofy looks. He was holding up a silver charm bracelet that he had picked up near the dead girl, and he was raising his find aloft, presumably to the thrall of an unseen crowd. There was a separate photograph of the shanty house in one of the gas station with a header that the article had been written by the Western Star's own rural and remote territories reporter, Chip Barnes. The piece was accompanied by a small picture of the author, looking smug that he was in a job, no doubt, and wearing, of all things, a florid bow tie. His Twitter handle was at the bottom. Fifteen she was, at school, studying English, liked reading and cycling, a drama buff, the dead kid. The manager of the KFC interviewed had said how smart she was, although he had added that he was disappointed in her because she occasionally took food from his store. He couldn't help himself at the most inappropriate time. So that would be her legacy then, a drumstick smashed, stashed down her uniform. For all the mutilation promised by the headline, there were no details inside and it piqued Laura's interest. Why say she'd been mutilated and then not at least give it some titbits? She took the piece of the newspaper and casually turned it over, a partial fragment of an article on the life of Reverend Quatermain. No first name in the bit she had. The local parish priest gone without replacement these last few months down to Perth on higher calling. <coughs> had lovingly held mass every Sunday at the St John of God's Chapel and the sacrament of the confessional every afternoon. A cut-off sleeve, but nothing else to get an impression of the man. No one had seen fit to tend the flock in these remote parts. It was, the article had said, hearkened back to the mid-1800s, when no Catholic soul could receive solace in the state outside of the great cities. She folded the cutting, 
and placed it in her top shirt pocket. She was so used to taking things that she didn't notice the barman watching her, but he didn't seem to mind. When she got back home, she went on to Chip Barn's Twitter feed. There was the germ of an idea for her project. There weren't a whole lot of people following Barnsley, but she ticked the follow box anyway. Shame. Young, naked, full-blood, A.G., Aboriginal girl, found in ditch, was the latest tweet he had left there. Other tweets had A.G. and A.B., Aboriginal boy, on them, or referred to them as F.B., full-blood, abo, males and females, as if they were subjects in a racist turn-of-the-century anthropology paper. At least the article he had written wrote of her hobbies like she was a human being. Laura entered her username and password so that she could boldly reply. Can we meet? I have important information about the dead girl, she wrote. She didn't have anything at all, but to a print journalist that tweet was like heroin. Flies to a spider, and she smiled. Barnes replied on his Twitter feed almost immediately. He was keen, all right. Case a little sensitive, not interested in hoaxes and hangers-on. Will pay, small, for info. He'd kept well within his character limit, and it was written in that Twitter style that confines and often confuses its message. Twitter, she thought, was such a useless forum for really conveying one's feelings. It wasn't designed to be definitive, and it could sometimes be the plaything of those more used to getting the last word. Like so many of these things, without the visual reaction of the person on the other end, it was hard to know if she'd either excited or offended. But there was no ambiguity here, and Laura would have to get her act together. If the whole thing was sensitive, then that was journalistic terminology for sexual assault. The hoaxer bit was particularly meant to weed out cranks claiming responsibility. Maybe even thrill-seekers like her. She googled Barnes. He'd been in print for almost ten years and was fiercely competitive. He'd been awarded not one, but two Walkley Awards for investigative journalism and had given a boozy speech the previous year redefining the life of an independent journalist. There was an edited 45-second snippet of it on YouTube. Barnes looked haggard, but in an attractive kind of way, and his rich, deep voice carried authority. What he was doing covering murders in shit heaps was anyone's guess. Shouldn't he be at some major news desk? She figured he'd transgressed somehow, pissed off someone big, maybe slept with his editor's wife. He was definitely not a team player, not with that track record. And there were no apprentices in Barnes' life, she would have to carefully word the next tweet, and it couldn't be some knee-jerk response of the first thing that entered a vacuous head. She played with the message and opened up. Naked. Sexual violation. No signs of struggle. Must have known him. By God, she'd given a bit of thought, and there was a lot of big guesses in there. She was just playing the odds. Most murders were by someone the victim knew anyway. She'd seen that on CSI or whatever. And that might have cut out any struggle. They'd left a little bracelet in Parbidou, of all places, and it sounded like they'd steal anything there. But no complete stranger would want to hurt a little Aboriginal girl, would they? After all, really. The tweet was a complete gamble. She pressed send and twitched with excitement. It seemed a long time, but it couldn't have been much more than two minutes. Barnes had replied, Do you live local? She was in. But how could uh, she keep the charade going? It was impossible, surely. Honesty was going to be the best policy, but not quite yet. At least her foot was in the door, and for the moment she hadn't fucked up. No time like the present, she tweeted back. Can you do Mario's Café in Lewisham Street and say 20 minutes? 
It was equally bold, but what the heck? She might have just invited a whole host of following Twitter heads. Again, the interval of expectation seemed to last quite a while. She shouted at the computer to come on. It was probably how internet dates waiting after posting their bios must have felt, she thought. It all ran through her head. He answered straight back, I'll be there. I take it you know me. It was 9.30 at night and raining fairly heavily. She hoped the Barnes, that Barnes wasn't wearing that silly bow tie. Mario's had been a good choice. All she had to do was walk across the road as it was directly opposite her apartment. It was well lit and on a main street, and she had the best vantage point to observe the entrance from the comfort of her front veranda. 9.30 came and went, and she didn't see him go in. It wouldn't do for her, however, to even be fashionably late. Not with this guy. She took her dog along with her as a kind of cover. The golden lab was reluctant to leave the house in the teeming rain, uncharacteristically pulling back hard from the normal excitement of the rattle of the leash. She was getting ready to leave, as it had been an hour, but then Barnes walked in. He was more boyish than she had imagined, almost an adolescent for all that experience. He sat down at the bar and ordered a Campari soda. Nice sophisticated. She sidled near to him at first not saying a word. He wasn't shy and turned towards her. Either you're the best looking hooker I've seen in quite a while, or you're Laura, he said, without embarrassment. It was brassy, but the sort of thing someone supremely confident might say, someone used to getting his own way. She knocked her head back with an open mouth laugh and he immediately liked her. There were so few women with an unrestrained sense of humour. She put out her hand and he clasped it. I'm sorry I'm a little wet. How are we going to play this? They moved to a quiet table and she ordered a vodka tonic. Journalists are blackmakers. blackmailers. They're always bargaining. She could come clean and he might walk away or maybe she could trade. Well, why don't we exchange, she said quietly. He could see that she was nervous. I mean, how on earth would a girl like you know anything? There's been no official pathology report released yet. Only a few people know that kind of information. He seemed incredulous and almost indignant that someone might possibly be ahead of him. She was a little angered and became aggressive and defensive in the way that some young women can transform when challenged. You think you're across this, but you're not, she retorted. She said it so loudly, people at the next table turned round. There'd been so little data released so far that no one could know the facts. It was a pretty safe bet and apart from being strident, she really hadn't said anything. Quid pro quo, she said. Quid pro quo. Not even a law student yet, and she was already using the lingo. You start, and she gulped at her drink hard enough that a little spilled onto her blouse. All right, then. He pulled out his notebook. She had a funny mark on her neck. They can't figure out what made it. There, that's it. He sat back, smiling and complacent. Your turn. Hang on just a minute. You haven't told me anything. What mark? What are you talking about? That doesn't mean anything. He stood up and looked to leave. She grabbed him by the sleeve and forced him down. Both of them looked upset. He pulled out his mobile phone and drew up the picture Zimmerman had taken back at Messner's clinic and which he had received as a CC email. He turned the face of the phone towards Laura and flashed it at her. Come now, I can't see properly. And she grabbed the phone from his hand, peering at the image more closely. How did you get this? She asked. Nothing official has been released from the coroner's yet. She was pleased with herself that she sounded so professional. Let's just say I have connections within the WAPF, he told her. It was more than a connection. 
Zimmerman and Barnes went way back, all the way back to middle school, close chums, inseparable. And back then, soon enough afterwards, a young cadet Barnes had promised not to write about his policeman friend caught in a brothel sting with a 14-year-old companion, nor of the payment Zimmerman's distressed father had made taking care of a little problem afterwards. That episode had stretched to friendship, but Zimmerman had always remembered his debts, paid them all in full, and it had gone well into each other's lives. Anything you turn up as D.I. I want to know about too, Barnes had told Zimmerman, and it was no idle threat. He reminded Zimmerman how easy it would be for a sealed old verdict to suddenly become unsealed. Forget about promotion or any sort of life for the Jew boy after that. She turned her attention back to the smartphone screen. Now was the time to impress. After nearly a full minute, she was emphatic. Well, it was a woman, all right, she said matter-of-factly. I agree, he replied, but how so? Well, the girl had an expensive charm bracelet on her, didn't she? If that was her own necklace, why steal that and not the bracelet? It doesn't make sense. And then the perp bringing her own necklace to the scene to kill her. That's pretty weird, isn't it? She knew all the words and was more thinking aloud as she dissected all the possibilities. He liked her all right. But you haven't given me anything, have you? Come clean. What the fuck are you up to? He wasn't angry at all and he placed an affectionate hand on hers more in an inclusive way. It was, as some say, might say, time to fess up. She told him the whole childish story about the university assignment, expecting him to blow up. But he just quietly sat there and nodded for a full minute in complete silence, only punctuated by a loud fuck afterwards. A large fat lady leaning against the bar turned round to watch them. So I'm like some science project then, am I? he said. Great, just an experiment. He feigned indignation. Perhaps he thought if he could fake it hard enough, he might con his way into her bed. Please, Chip, it's really important. Nobody will be doing anything like this, she pleaded. It was the first time she had called him by name. I work alone. Always have. Always will. But he said it with such a smirk that she knew he was malleable. Okay, she thought. She might just have to sleep with him then. Why not? He was halfway decent. She could bring a guy like him home. Mama would be pleased. He wouldn't normally have volunteered any more information, let alone something personal. But he decided to tell her that he was going to Parbidou the next morning. If she wanted to carry his bags, then he could always use an assistant. She could join him, he told her, but paying her own way, of course. She agreed to meet him outside of Mario's at 7am, so that they could get to Broome Airport by mid-morning. They'd then drive to Parbidou from there. They parted with a handshake, and she left pretending to walk down the main street, the dog reluctantly in tow, away from her apartment so as to throw him off the track. For the moment, she didn't want him to know where she lived, he was a journalist, after all. There'd be no sleep for her that night. Ruminating, she thought of all the possibilities, and she planned on being an asset and not a liability. She got up at 3am, having just dozed lightly, and packed a carry-all backpack. In it, four changes of underwear, a boob tube, and a formal, dressy dress, just in case they went anywhere fancy. She threw in her first legal pad, a couple of pens, a flight toothbrush pack, and a roll of toilet paper. One never knows, she thought. Packing for a big trip was so, so hard, she mouthed. And although she was really tired, she laughed out loud anyway. She left the dog on its leash with a small note wrapped around the door handle of her upstairs neighbours. They'd look after him. 
Lord knows she'd done that before, and she promised that she'd only be gone a few days at most. Barnes arrived precisely on time in a taxi, and they travelled in silence to the airport. There were no other passengers, and she had no luggage to check in. They moved into the frequent flyer lounge to wait. Despite the premium passenger status, the Virgin Airways coffee was fairly rancid, but at least it washed down a halfway decent iced donut. After they'd strapped in and the flight attendant had split her arms away from her body and then pointed them forwards in instruction of the nearest deaf exits, Barnes closed his eyes. She was pretty brazen. Did you fuck the editor's wife then? Barnes sat bolt upright. Oh, come on, Laura, he sighed. He realised that she was questioning how he had sunk so low to be doing such a shit job. Everybody thought I was doing her. Truth is, I was probably the only one at the news desk who wasn't giving her the pork. You really want to know? She nodded. They always get you in the minutiae. That's where it matters. In the marginalia. Someday somebody's going to write a book about that. What are you talking about? She said a little confused. Everyone falls from grace eventually, he muttered and went back to sleep. She prodded him awake. Going back is never easy. The shit experience changes you. Come on, specifics. Stop talking hyperbole and bullshit. He leaned over to her as if she were the only one there, shifting awkwardly in the confines of the economy seat and tipping over half a cup of Evian water. I made up some stuff. She seemed incredulous that a journalist could actually fabricate anything. She clearly had a lot to learn. Back then I was a big-time reporter, not the roving correspondent of Fartsville you see now before you. It wasn't funny, and he actually looked anguished. It was a story he had litigated in his head a million times before. Go on, she implored him, and turned towards him in her seat, deliberately sitting cross-legged, so that he could see a little ways up her skirt. She may have been naive, but she knew how to get what she wanted, when she wanted it. We were out near Rafa in the Gaza Strip, but on the Israeli side, and I reported that the barrier that snakes across the lower border was all solid, impenetrable wall. They interviewed me on CNN about it. You can still probably find it on YouTube. Truth be told, most of it's a simple fence that a good motocross specialist could sail over blindfolded. When you go there, the bits that are concrete wall and that push into the occupied territory have sentry posts. It's pretty obvious why they're there and why they impinge on disputed land. On the Palestinian side, there's always a hill where a sniper could use a vantage point to kill someone walking along the highway. So what, Laura said. Well, the so what was that one of the Palestinian negotiating team, Abdul Ali Latif, had told me to lie about it on broadcast news. They'd get more sympathy if everyone thought they were completely closed in. For that nicety, I'd be free to travel from Rafa to Ramallah and interview anyone on the Peace Talks panel whenever I liked. Anyhow, CNN just flashed up pictures of where I'd been and proved I'd been talking bullshit. And all the crap about Abdul came out pretty quick too. I was lucky to keep my job with the organisation, really. He didn't fare so well. I think he's probably selling scarves in some Arab shuk by now. Jeez. She pursed her lips together and nothing much more was said, either for the rest of the flight or during the long drive up to Parbidou and the rental. About the only thing she noticed was Barnes intermittently shifting his gaze from the highway to her bare legs. Arriving late, it would be fair to say that neither Laura nor Barnes were overly impressed with the highlights of Parbidou. Both fairly tired, they grabbed a quick takeaway and settled into their separate adjoining rooms at the shanty's opposition, 
the Cupid Motel. Half the um, fairy lights on the roof forming a large cherub twisted contraposto mid-fling of an arrow were burnt out <clears throat> and the effect made it on approaching rather tacky as if a toddler was just wielding a random stick. She woke early and was moderately nauseated from the previous night's meal. Possibly the worst Chinese food ever, she thought. Barnes and Laura gathered themselves together after they faced a continental breakfast that was just weak milk toast and a pull-away mini-tub of marmalade packed aside a plastic jug of harsh coffee. They made their way in the rental to the home office of the town's journalist, Andy Hanscom. He was a tall, thin, wiry man with a greying mane of once bright red hair and he sprouted a fashionable ginger fuzz on his upper lip. Coming outside, he extended a firm grip to both in rapid, exaggerated succession, broadly grinning with a yellowing smile that hadn't seen a dentist in some years. Come in, my wife Ruth will make tea. She does that for guests, he announced. She's from Singapore, he offered. On cue, she entered with all of the unexpected things, a silver service, and she laid out the lemon slices with a set of tongs, like it was the front salon of the Raffles Hotel. The two didn't speak, but communicated through eye signals. She deferentially backed out of the room once her performance was over. Hanscom proudly fanned out the snaps he had taken before being shooed away by the police. Most were of Lisa, coiled into her death hole. One of her eyes opened, the left opaque and clouded, but the right a bright cobalt blue. The others closed, one of the dogwood tattoo, still another of the marks around her neck, and a last blurred image that had attempted to sneak between Lisa's legs. Oh, that one's no good. The coppers were unhappy about me taking it. It's pretty hard to make out. They were hurrying me out of there. Are there any rumours that you know of? Street noise, Barnes asked him. He imagined the place ran like any hamlet where everybody knew everybody else's business. There was no reason to assume any such thing, and Hanscom shook his head in the negative. Well, there's some gossip of rough sexual assault, Laura chimed in now. What do you make of the neck marks, Andy? She was trying to appear useful. Well, it's not a piece of wire, he replied. We had one of those here about ten years ago, Mad Ludwig. He laughed. Laura and Barnes looked at one another. More than any interest in his story, it seemed inconceivable that anyone would have stayed here for a decade. An Austrian pig farmer who came up here and throttled his wife for fucking around I think he was slighted by even the slim pickings around these parts back then that anyone except her husband would have been worth rogering. Some thought she'd been doing one of the abos, but we never found out who it was. Everyone knew he was mad and he gave, up, he gave himself up right quick to the police, left the missus sitting in the living room with the bailing twine still double-wrapped around her neck. There was no real mystery in that one. Laura and Barnes talked amongst themselves as though Hanscom was not there. The idea that it was some random trucker did not appeal. It's possible, said Barnes, but unlikely. We're shoehorning it a bit to fit what we already know. It's the wrong way round. Journalism 101. Hypothesis to fit the facts. OK, Laura nodded. At last, something bankable that she'd actually learned from Barnes. It was a fair enough lesson for starters. She was configuring her little thesis for the law faculty in her head. The lemon having been squeezed, Barnes and Laura said their goodbyes. A brief stop at the police station proved unfruitful, and there was no one there who wanted to be interviewed or who provided any useful information. It was a long way to travel for very little. 
Barnes asked the duty clerk for an email contact and he left his card. He hoped to receive a list of all violent Aboriginal deaths in the region for the last 10 years. Maybe there was something there, some pattern. No one could recall any overlapping cases, but there was no one around who might know of those there, none with much enthusiasm to help. Back at the motel, they both compared notes and Laura felt like a real cub reporter. Well, didn't get much out of that, Barnes said, except maybe that it was a local or someone seconded here. How so, she said. Barnes had some sort of nose for scandal. One didn't go through what he had without learning something, even if there was nothing to learn. An outsider doesn't make much sense, too clean to be so random. Barnes was assuming a lot, but the search for some aimless killer would likely lead nowhere and remain another one of the unsolved. The copy for that story wouldn't fly, and they openly contemplated the alternatives. That would mean that there's possibly another one around here, Laura added hopefully. Or something like it, honing a craft, Barnes replied. You mean a serial? She seemed noticeably animated. I doubt that. We'd all have known about it. We'd have read the stories and learnt the polished legend. It would be part of Westralian history by now. No, I can't see that. But a second one, for sure. A form of proust, you might like to say. Like a practice run. So we need to be looking for crossover bits from other murders and the Matu people. They won't be particularly forthcoming, I suspect, but we need to find their elder, at least speak with him. We'll also need the Port Hedland police records of Matu deaths in the region in the last who knows how long. Now there was a plan, she thought. Barnes took his obligatory afternoon nap. It was something no doubt he had learned in journalism school. And as he slept, she ran off an introduction to her project on her laptop. She interspersed it with lurid photos, taking care to crop off identifications of people and places. For a first draft, she figured, it wasn't half bad. Going down to the Alfred Hotel, they grabbed a dusk beer and a chance to converse with the regulars. Most knew the tribal leader, Black Jimmy. It seemed a stupid question about his name, but Laura asked it anyway. He was an ordinary fellow, Peter Thompson, who'd gotten sent down three times for trying to prize open vans. He may be a little inept at B&E or pilfering stuff, but he's pretty well regarded around these parts, piped up an old man at the end of the bar. Not only is he a decent bloke, but also a master raconteur. Knows all the dreamtime Pilbara legends and reads the bush better than most. Loves the opera and quite a good tenor voice too, if that sort of thing turns you on. They resolved to meet him early next morning out at the estate, where he could be found most any day in his front yard fixing motors. The house was fairly run down, part brick, part wood. For sure he'd put it up himself. There were two tents nearby and a chicken coop with almost all the chickens strutting around freely outside. A macchiato kelpie came up to their car with a friendly wag of a white tail. Only Jimmy's legs were visible under the business end of a jacked-up E.H. Holden and there was the sound of a wrench on metal and intermittent engine revs. One of his handsome sons kicked the side of the car to announce guests and Jimmy startled up, hitting the underside of the engine with his forehead. Fuck me dead, he cursed. Charlie, I'm going to kill you one day. He pulled himself free from the vehicle along the lower roller, rubbing his head and wiping his hands on a T-shirt that had seen a lot of action. It was hard to spot any clean section. Heard you were coming, he smiled, a broad, white-toothed smile that would put anyone to shame. 
Let's go into the house, he said, as Laura and Barnes made their introductions, foregoing the handshakes. Inside, five or six children were playing tag between the lounge and the bedrooms, shouting and laughing. Jimmy yelled at them to piss off, and they all scampered away in different directions, like a kicked anthill. I guess you want to know about Lisa, then. Sure, said Barnes, and also about anything like it before amongst your people. You're so respectful, brother, he replied. Most give us coons a wide berth and don't give a flying when one of us is done over. They were a little surprised to hear him speak that way about his own. Sensing their shock, he explained that he had free licence to do so. Like them blacks in America using the N-word, it's cool, he muttered, as long as you bastards don't do it. He pointed an accusatory finger at one and then the other. Don't even think about it, is what he meant. If we're going to sit down here and talk about Lisa, we should settle in. Want a beer, he politely asked. It was eight in the morning, and Barnes and Laura demurely nodded their heads. Got one then, he smiled. They were both a little taken aback. Just joking, he laughed. But that's how you see us darkies, he said. He was at his most engaging, and it was hard not to admire his backhanded cynicism. Barnes had looked him up the night before, quite a cyber footprint. Black Jimmy was a powerful advocate for the wayward Pilbara youth. One time he had lobbied the Torres Strait Islander Commission for a Black History Month after a tour of the southern United States and the Lincoln Memorial Centre. No one had listened to him much after that, even though the speech he had made had been quite eloquent. For a short while afterwards there had been a big internet coverage, but at least he had a great sense of history, black and white. Barnes reminded him of his role. Yeah, black history. Supposed to be taught and honoured in schools. Nothing wrong with that, and then again, perhaps everything. The commissioners, they downright hated it. At least I got to see Vincenzo La Scola sing his Caravadossi before he died. It's from Puccini's Tosca, you know. Wasn't a total waste then. They both imagined that some Aborigine would know bugger all about opera as Jimmy sat shaking his head, transiently lost in memory and humming one of its arias. He finally landed back to matters in hand. Lisa was what you might call an aggressive loner, terribly bright but unschooled, if you know what I'm saying, the wasted brain of any little Aboriginal girl living up here in this shit creek. Couldn't keep it together, wagged school more times than I can remember, said it was slowing her down. Her mother, Marinda, tried all that parent-teacher crap, but in the finish with so many others at home, she didn't really have the time. You won't be able to see her. The family's off limits to the press. They hung round for a week or so until they lost interest. I mean, who cares about the death of any of our kids? Barnes had read all the big paper stuff that had floated on about Lisa. They don't trust you any more after the journos started picking around a 15-year-old's sex life and stuff. I'm sorry, but that's just how it is. When they couldn't get close, they started speculating and making shit up. They sat quietly, taking it all in. This was rare territory for any white person, and it wasn't common to hear it direct from the horse's mouth. Jimmy launched into a nostalgic rant before coming back to earth. Used blokes don't see us most of the time. That's one insensitivity. And when you do see it, it doesn't register. That's the other one. Fucking indifference. Far worse. He needn't have apologised, but his upbringing made him anyway. I'm sorry, just that we don't really exist up here. But then again, we don't exist down in any fancy place either. Well, anyhow, Lisa was whip smart, but not smart enough to beg off the sniffing and chroming it up. 
it was everywhere. And if it wasn't the solvents, the cleaner fluid or the petrol, she'd be on the insect repellent. You don't believe it until you see them doing it. Cigarette lighters, spray paints, they do it all. It wasn't like she was at school anyhow. We all came to help such a beautiful child. But first come the forgetting stories, as we call them, and then the sicknesses, the liver troubles, the kidney troubles, the brain no good neither. Jimmy rattled off the symptoms of any generic abuser like they were all sitting in a GP's office. The crazy moments, the violence, the haze. It'd be the mark of a brain tumour in a white household down south. They'd run the gamut of expensive scans and all that. Up here they just make the assumptions. No tests or nothing and just looks you in the eye and locks you in a room to wait it out. The health service for us folks is such shit, he lamented. Our babies die ten up here blacks to one of your white ones, you know. But they didn't. Half the girls have their own kids just into their teens. What the fuck do they know about raising youngsters? And the other half have the gono. Do you know the surgeons here don't operate on any of our girls past ten year old if they come down with the tummy gripe? Waited out with antibiotics as they think none of them has the appendix. It's all gono up inside the tubes. They wouldn't treat some white fella's girl that way now, would they? Barnes and Laura knew as much about this stuff as they did about interstellar travel. It was awful, and it made her sick. After all that garbage, we brought her back, got her off it, put her noggin back in school. She was doing real well, you know, topping her class. She wanted to go to the Adelaide School of Arts and Drama, a stage career. Who knows? The first ABO Oscar winner. She loved it all. A different world. Jimmy was by now quite emotional, and opening the fridge, he clearly felt a beer was quite in order. So where are we now, I mean, with Lisa? Barnes was asking now to move the story along rather callously. Oh, saved by the church. That's where we are. Saved by Mother Church. She came up these ways as far back as the mid-1800s or thereabouts. The fathers will tell you. They know the story better than me. We, or you more like, were still a convict nation. The fathers taught us all the story. They too had their own prejudice. I mean, the Anglicans against the Catholics, decrees and such even against the Holy Mass brought by the famous New South Wales governors, Philip Macquarie, darling. What do you people know? You think them big fellas outstanding men, but they lived in rot passing laws to stop our fathers coming up to us and giving us the sacraments. You, the convicts and their jailers, turned us men into inmates and took our freedom. That's the irony of us abos, all right. You now free and us all incarcerated in our own land. That'd be some trick to turn your own lands against a man, like ripping out your heart and showing it to you. But now it's supposedly all ours, native title. They give it back to us all, the Western Desert, from high up by the Percival down to Disappointment and all the way past Balfour Downs, all ours free for our Nangachara Council to preside over. And the only other light in it was Mother Church. He was being specific now. But then it takes the passion of one priest to fix our Lisa's ills. And who might that have been, Barnes casually asked, taking notes. Alan Quatermain, caring counsellor, a gentle priest, spent loads of time with Lisa and her parents, Marinda, and that no-good waster Vernon. Saint Alan, we called him. Jimmy introduced his wife, Ruby, who had made a warming cup of tea. She nestled in for a quiet listen onto an old beanbag that had seen better days. Where had Laura heard that name? It started to nag at her. Is he around, Barnes asked. Can we speak with him? 
Oh, Quartermain, he's dead. Went down to Perth and we all heard that he died. Galloping cancer, I believe. No doubt the Archdiocese will have records. Barnes and Laura made notes. Why did he go to Perth from here? Don't really know. Said he had ecclesiastical business and then next I heard he died. Would have been only mid-fifties. A real saint, that bloke. Perhaps they're going to canonise him or something. You might let us know, eh? Jimmy and Ruby seemed quite hopeful. And Catholicism outlawed, said Laura. She remembered reading about it and only now took a keener interest. Yeah, in the history books they brought the Passionists out from Rome. Could hardly speak a word of English themselves. Italians they were, teaching us abbos who spoke none either. They saw us as pure brutes, savages, an experiment. We learned the English fast, but who out of them would ever take the time to learn with us our languages? Ours, a simpler order, just the pointing at something with no words for identity. He rattled off the Dreamtime story words in a soft, low hum. Partani, the legend of the lost kangaroo that became the stone in the Liveringa station out past the floodplains of Fitzroy's River. A big, broad stone looking over the Urala Creek and Thanks be to it that the place has never gone dry. The Pantanagarlupa Walpumalga snake that ran hard against the blue-eyed skink and the little boy that died in the great sandy desert and changed into a temple jury bird. These were not tales that either of them had ever heard and they listened to him speak to each with a lively air, shifting his feet lightly on the carpet as if in full corroboree war paint and amongst people he knew. Jimmy picked up an imaginary throwing stick and launched it to the corner of the room, skewering an equally imaginary goanna or maybe a wild turkey or pelican. No one could begrudge him his happiness. They called us an inoffensive peoples and told us that we were of great interest to them. They argued over whether we had souls and if we could be saved. But in that saving we could see their ways in us. They had their body and the blood of Christ, their Eucharist, but we had our totems too, our symbol of the animals of the land that was identified with us, the bandicoot and the possum, they were our flesh too. We could see all the living flesh of our totem in their immortal spirit, and some south of us had their jeringa to give to each young child, a small polished stone or carved piece of wood that was for him and him alone, to bring him luck. And what more is the blood and the body of Christ than just a piece of luck, eh? The whole thing that the fathers brought was so crazy, we were the only converts in the world who could understand it. Barnes laughed at the prospect that an entire race could be seduced with an old madness, and Laura seemed uncomfortable. Even she had struggled with the concept of transubstantiation. We feel these matters in our spirits. In truth, we should not even be mentioning Lisa's name until the period of mourning is over. How so, said Barnes. Well, she has an ordinary name, but if someone dead is mentioned in front of us, it's a bad spirit and we need a sort of pre-warning. We are, if nothing, a shy race, easily intimidated, shot like animals in the past and now offended by the whirling spirits of our dead, needing a caveat from every television station that us abos should fear the mere mention or the very sight of our departed every meeting acknowledging us as the rightful owners of the land, saluting our possession that none would ever hand over now. It's a sacrilege, but them white fellows think it respectful enough. All right, all right, I get your beef. 
Barnes was becoming impatient. Do you now, he said. But I know the church weren't perfect. Geez, I haven't even gone into those of us whom they stole. That's a whole worse story. Some of them come up here and tell us mums and dads, you're not wanted no more. Your kids be waifs and free-range like to move away and start afresh with no knowledge of your parents or history, like we don't matter and they don't matter neither. A double neglect. And some of them kids not knowing ever of their birthers. And thus the other side of the fence hoping and praying that these little ones are all right and loved. We never know. They tell us what is ours ain't ours no more. Can you believe it? He was off on another trail of tears, and this both Laura and Barnes had only read about. If it wasn't one thing, it was another. They make us believe that we're not good enough for our kids, so they be someone else's. The oyster up this way with that bit of grit inside it makes the pearl all those ones want and broom and pay the big dollar for. But he only makes the pearl because he's imperfect, you get me? His sadness turned itself around and he smiled, changing the subject back again. Anyways, you wanted to know about that spirit, that if it has a different name for some object, then we need to make up a new name for the thing which they were, fire, a tree even, the most basic things. With the turning of his thoughts, Laura and Barnes got up to leave and it was then that Jimmy told them something else that was crucial. Death is the status of a man or woman, you see, even if they is loved or hated. If someone in the life promotes a fear in those around when we bury them, we do it in a way to try and stop them from wandering free as a spirit afterwards. The simplest way is to tie the toes together. What did you say, Barnes asked, remembering the iPhone image Zimmerman had sent him? Not even knowing its significance. Well, kind of stop him running away, Jimmy rabbited on, or load the body down with big rocks, maybe bury them in a hollowed-out tree or put them in a circle trench or up on a hill. Snap. It was someone local, all right. Someone completely familiar with the Aboriginal customs of death. As they left, Black Jimmy handed them a well-worn card. This guy came to see me, but it was one of those rare times I was overseas. Do you know him? Zimmerman, Forensics WAPF, Perth. A little, said Barnes. 